0: Go ahead and uh, turn, to, turn to Esther, grab your Bibles. If you're new, if you have a device, we're doing the English Standard Version. Keep you in step there. We're gonna be doing uh, chapter six and seven today. If you're joining us for the first time this morning, uh, we're week six, I think I mentioned earlier in our series through the book of Esther, uh, which is the name of a Jewish woman who by the providence of God becomes the queen of Persia. And the story, as we've been going through it, takes another unexpected plot twist a couple chapters in when a man named Haman, who becomes the king's highest official, hatches a plan to have all of the Jewish people exterminated. Uh, And so up to this point, what we've seen uh, in God as sort of this unseen but always moving influence throughout all these chapters is that he, he acts as sort of a conductor. You know, in week one, I pointed out that, hey, if you, you, know, you click on Spotify or you pop in a CD or you put on a vinyl or you, you pop in a cassette if you're just going way old school and you're analog like that. Um, if you listen to a piece of music, you're just listening to the piece of music. You're not listening to the person that produced it, that wrote it, that played on it. If you're listening to orchestral music, you're not, you're not seeing the conductor conduct all of the musicians and the instruments, but yet what you're hearing is the result of the conductor's work or the producer's work or the, or, or the instrumentalist's work. And this is the type of hand that we see God playing all the way through Esther. He's never mentioned, God has never mentioned once in the book, and yet we, seen, we, we see this unseen influence that he has over all of the events that are happening. We see his, what we call his providence, which is God working in all of just the ordinary and the mundane events of our lives. So even when we can't see him, it doesn't mean he's not working. And so that, that's really the influence of God, not only in the book of Esther, but in the book of our life, which by the way, as we're gonna see uh, today, is far less scandalous and over the top uh, than than our, than our regular mundane lives are. So last week, Uh, We saw the plot just continuing to twist and unfold. And we saw Esther's cousin, Mordecai, who's another one of our main players in the story. He encourages Esther to go before the king and plead for the life of the Jewish people. Uh, So at great risk to herself, Esther, she does that. She takes the risk. She goes before the king. She approaches him and she ends up hatching her own plan in an attempt to thwart the plan of Haman. And we we asked the question last week, remember, we said, where does God come into those moments of uncontrollable chaos in our lives? Is he actually there or is everything just sort of running and spinning by chance? And what we came to as way of conclusion is that just because things are out of control for us, they're never out of control for God. And that our greatest risks are never greater than God. Because at the end of the day, God cannot be stopped, right? He's always going to be working. The plan that God has laid out is gonna be laid out. And so today we're gonna see how God responds then in terms of how our pride influences and affects these things. So how does God respond to man's pride? Um, And hopefully it'll, it'll serve as a warning to us in how deeply we desire to elevate our own selves to a place that's only reserved for God. All right, so how many of you guys have watched the show? I mean, I might be dating myself, but America's Funniest Home Videos, right? Yeah, a few of you. So I watched it back in the Bob Saget days, you know, back in the early 90s, you know, and and the show is just crazy. But, you know, and again, the the examples that you would see of these home videos, you know, you'd see like, I always like the ones where like like the girl is on the stage, the the woman, you know, singing and she's doing this dramatic crescendo and then like all the stage props like fall on her at the end, you know. Um, And then, you know, or or the guy jumping on the trampoline, jumping higher and higher, and eventually flipping and like landing in the tree, right? So the video ends, you know, everybody is laughing. about it. Those people probably died. They just never showed those things. You know, I always thought that was funny that we really never saw like the ambulance pulling in, you know, and all of that. Um, but it's kind of funny to think how much we love seeing people when they're in that particular moment where it looks like everything's going good. And they think everything's going good, and then everything goes south. Um, you know, even recently, a, a little, little bit, something with a little bit more weight. Um, maybe some of you have heard of this woman named Elizabeth Holmes, who started this uh, this company called uh, Theranos, and uh, she was kind of this young medical entrepreneurial guru, and she devised this new method of doing blood tests, but but it it, it ended up not working. Um, and so she ends up making billions of dollars in the process with this particular product that actually never got off the ground and never worked. And she just deceived all of these people. And eventually she was, she was outed, right? She was, she was uh, outed for fraud. And again, there's just something inside of us. We see stories like this and we rejoice when people's pride and deception is exposed as long as it's not ours, right? Right? which we usually believe is, is never quite as prideful or quite as deceptive as everybody else is. And so one of the things that we're gonna learn this morning from God's word is that, man, the pride of man eventually converges with the providence of God. Our pride, it eventually converges with the providence of God. And this is what we get happening as we pick up in Esther chapter six. So uh, read along with me in verse one, it says this. On that night, the king could not sleep. And so he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's young men who attended him said, Nothing's been done for him. And the king said, well, who is in the court? Now, Haman had just entered the, the uh, outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, well, Haman is there standing in the court and the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, well, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be bought, which the king has worn and the horse that the king has ridden and on whose head a royal crown is set and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials and let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Verse 10, then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse as you've said and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate and leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Verse 12, then Mordecai returned to the king's gate But Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. And then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Thanks, Zeresh for that encouraging word at the end. We'll stop right there. I added that at the end. That's not God's inspired word. That's Ronnie's uninspired word. Excuse me. So we finally see the end. We finally see the beginning of the end of this despicable character, right? And just like that, almost, we're gonna see in a minute, our sense of justice is just satisfied. I mean, this is a dude who literally weaves his own web of destruction. We're still, nobody around him seems to be sad, including his own wife. There's a lot of dry eyes right now in the Haman household, given what's coming, right? And um, you know, it just reminds me of this movie that Melissa and I recently saw. I won't, I won't tell you the name of the movie, but I am gonna give away the end, um, so you'll know it when you get to it. But it's a, but it's a movie with, uh, it's a movie starring Liam Neeson, And uh, it's it's a long story. I'm not gonna gonna do the whole thing here for you. But he he deceives his wife in just just a very underhanded way. It's like, well, is there any other kind of uh, deception, Ronnie, that isn't underhanded? But but it's really underhanded, the way he deceives his wife. And he arrogantly thinks that he's gotten away with it. And then in the final scene, uh, his his wife shoots him, right? And gets him, but it it happens in this way that you weren't expecting, right? And it was funny was that his wife shoots him and then um, this woman behind us in the theater yells, thank you, you know, like that, right? And it's so, it's so interesting, isn't it though? How much we hate the way pride looks on everyone but ourselves, right? It's like whenever Casey Cook and I, what's up, Case? It's like whenever Casey Cook and I play ping pong. I mean, he, he loves beating me so much because he knows, I know that I'm better than him. And there's, there's a particular kind of rejoicing with him when, when he beats me because of the pride of man that, that, is, uh, that is just washed over me. But the, but the pride of man, what we see here and what we're seeing here with Haman is that it always converges with the providence of God. And this unravels now on Haman like just a classic movie plot, right? Um, what we see here first is that the king has insomnia, right? The whole unfolding of events that we see here, it's happening because the king can't sleep one night and decides, well, to have what sounds like the most boring book in the world read back to him, which somehow fails to put him back to sleep. And so this, just this, what we would say is just this random event of the king's insomnia or lack of sleep leads to this particular discovery, right? At one point, Mordecai saved the king from an assassination plot. But nothing was done to reward him, which bothers the king. And the reason why it bothers the king is because rewarding people for their loyalty is how the king established allies. So it was important that when somebody did something good in favor of the king, that they got rewarded. And at the same moment the king is reflecting on how to honor Mordecai, we would say all these just happen moments just happen, right? Haman just happens to arrive at the king's court and thinking the king is asking how he might honor him, right? Suggests a person of honor get access to the king, get access to the king's personal wardrobe and his horse and be paraded through the square of the city. But then what happens? Well, it backfires on Haman. When the king says, dude, I like the way you think. You're an ideas guy, Haman. Now go do this for Mordecai, right? So it kind of boomerangs on him, it flips on him. So Mordecai is honored by Haman of all people in the story who, by the way, just recently built a gallows to have him hanged on because Morty never paid Haman the kind of respect Haman thought he deserved, right? I mean, you just can't make this stuff up the way it's all coming together. And then Haman goes back home, tail between his legs, and even his own wife Zeresh is like, brother, it's not looking good for you, is it, Right? Ironically, the whole gallows thing was her idea in the first place, but of course, Haman is going to be made to pay for it. So what we see here very clearly, again, is that the pride of man converges with the providence of God, and at some point, people get taken down. At some point, man's pride takes men down. And again, if it's not in this life, death does a pretty good job of it, eventually. Proverbs 29, 23 tells us one's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. It's interesting that Mordecai eventually, again, not a guy with the lowliest of spirit, but eventually obtained honor because again, he wasn't plotting genocide the way Haman was and God eventually honored Mordecai. Matthew 23, 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be Exalted, So there is something in the way that God has designed us where humility is actually the method and the way and the path towards the honor that we actually crave many times. So this chain reaction of events, man, this just begins to unfold now on Haman. And it reaches this climactic ending here in chapter 7 which is this. I'm gonna back up to 6.14. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Now chapter seven, the king and Haman went into feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request even to the half of my kingdom? It'll be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted for my wish, and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? Verse six, and Esther said, a foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. Verse seven, and the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. For he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? And as the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. By the way, that means death right there. Verse nine, then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance, in attendance on the king said, moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. Verse 10, and the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. So the pride of man converges with the providence of God to undo the man. So what happens here? Well, Esther exposes Haman. Man, we don't need to worry about Esther anymore, do we? I mean, this woman is slick, right? If we had any doubts about the mental fortitude of Esther, these should all be put to rest because she has Haman handled here, right? What does she do, man? She butters up the king for two days with good food and probably even better wine, right? Before laying out her request, which was that her life is in peril. Now, obviously, the king doesn't see this one coming at all, right? So when Hester tells him that her people are about to be annihilated, it throws the king into sort of this wrath-induced frenzy. Obviously, conveniently, not remembering that he was the one who signed off on this genocide to begin with, right? So what does he do? We can imagine the king, goblet of wine in hand, right? Asks, who did this? And then in just sort of this epic penultimate scene, Esther cries out, this guy, your guy, Haman. Again, cue, you know, orchestra music for all of this. And then it says, Haman was terrified. I mean, I think terrified is putting it mildly, daddy-o, you know? So Esther exposes Haman and then what happens? Well, Haman is executed but not before one final, just humiliating twist because the king goes to the garden. He goes to the garden to cool off and contemplate and collect his thoughts about what was happening and what just happened. Maybe even having a moment of realization that he had played some part in signing off on this mass genocide. So maybe his thought was, man, how can I save face? How can I get rid of Haman? And then he finds his answer when he returns to the feasting hall where Haman is on the couch with Esther begging for mercy, and the king is able to accuse him of assault, which was legitimate, by the way, because in fact, the law stated that nobody, nobody but the king and her assistants were allowed to come within seven feet of the queen. So Haman was way out of line. And so again, man, there's this sense of justice here when we see Haman getting his dues, and it feels so gratifying to us, right? And then it just ends, right? Haman's face is covered, and good old Harbona, a late addition to the story, you know, casually mentions that the gallows Haman prepared for Mordecai are still standing, and by the way, they're in mint condition, right? Just waiting for their trial run. You gotta love Harbona. You can just like read into the, 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 you know, the inflection in his voice. So justice is served just like that, right? Haman is hanged, and the wrath of the king is abated. Now, of course, that's not the end of the story because everything didn't just go happily ever after, even though Haman is hanged, and we'll get to that next week. But what's illustrated for us today is that the pride of man converges with the providence of God to undo men. What it shows us is that in the end, none of us has any game. What it shows us is that in the end, our flesh betrays us, What it shows us is that our pride is actually broken logic. It doesn't lead to anywhere that in actuality, if we would know how it ended, makes any sense ever at all for us. And so here's what I wanna do as we finish our time today. I wanna wanna talk about some of the ways that pride undoes us. Um, that we're gonna take from what happened here in the story with Haman, but actually is much closer to us than we are probably even comfortable thinking about, even if we don't have like a literal gallows waiting for us at the house that somebody can you know impale us on, right? But let's talk about that for a few minutes. How does our pride undo us? I have four ways that I think it undoes us. Here's the first one. It blinds us to the obvious. Pride blinds us to the obvious. Pride escalates in our hearts, in our lives, if it goes undealt with. Haman couldn't even see what was coming. That brother couldn't even see what was coming His pride had blinded him to the obvious, man. Maybe this has happened to you. It's like walking around all day with like a mustard stain on your mouth. Has it ever happened to any of you guys? Oh, one of you. That's interesting. <laughs> when you, strut, you, know, you strut around all day, you're all confident, you know, you're all self-assured, until you finally are able to get to the bathroom and look in the mirror and realize you've had mustard on your face all day, right? Some of you are like, I was there that Sunday you preached with mustard on your face, Ronnie. <laughs> yeah. But pride inevitably leads to the exposure of our frailty and how we're not all that. And it exposes how irrational it is to believe that we are more than we are when we are so easily undone, right? It blinds us to the obvious. Proverbs 28 says, whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. Haman was somebody who was trusting in his own mind to figure out the path that he was on and the course that he desired to take. And in the end, it completely just slingshots back on him. So pride blinds us to the obvious. Secondly, pride narrows our options. At some point, it was just too late for Haman, wasn't it? The humiliation he suffered with Mordecai, man, it was about to go far deeper than he could possibly Imagine. And that happens with us sometimes. Sometimes our pride gets us to places where the consequences are too late to turn back from. And in those cases, we can still learn so much. We can still learn so much because God can use the consequences that our pride leads us to. A great example in scripture is of, remember, King Nebuchadnezzar. He's such a good example of someone who suffered the consequences of his pride but he let those consequences humble him to the place where he eventually honored God and God restored him. So some of you guys can look back and you can trace some of the, just the foolish decisions that you've made or some of the ways that you just kept rebelling against God when he was calling you to something. You kept hitting the brakes on God and you can see in hindsight that they led to consequences that now, maybe even now, maybe even for years, you're, you're paying for. Again, that's not the end of the story for us um, because God actually uses those consequences to humble us, right? To open up our eyes, to let us know that although there may be some things that are too late because we're bearing the consequences on them, it's not too late to have a restored relationship with him. And it's not too late to see how he's gonna work on the heels of those consequences that our circumstances have brought us into. So there's always hope. Psalm 138 says, for though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. It's important for us to remember that. Number three, pride strips us of dignity. I mean, man, we just gotta remember. Remember last week? Remember just a couple of days earlier, Haman is just bragging to his friends about all of his riches, about all of his sons, about all of his accomplishments and how much love he got from the king and queen. Like a minute later, and he's begging the queen to save his life before being impaled on the gallows that, by the way, he built and paid for. Pride strips us of our dignity, and dignity is something that is given to us as a gift from God. Now, you could say that Haman finally had a moment of humility as he's begging the queen, but the text doesn't really say that. The text doesn't say that he had any remorse it was just that he was pleading for his life. The text just kind of indicates that this brother got caught, right? And there's a big difference between caught and repentance, right? Caught means I just want to be able to uh, get a pardon so that I can get back to doing what I want to do. You know what repentance is? Repentance is an acknowledgement that I have sinned before the king, that I have sinned before a holy God. And repentance is saying, man, I'm gonna turn the other way. I'm gonna break from the sin that has brought me to this place of guilt. So there's a big difference between being caught and being repentant, right? And the problem with pride is that it fills us with a false sense of dignity, when in reality, it's just eroding it away. Because the belief that we are something more than who we are is how we actually play God not actually how we come before God and pray for forgiveness. And by the way, God won't be played like this forever. He won't be played like this with people that sin as grievously as Haman, and it won't be played by people who do more respectable sins like we do, who don't take it as serious as even Haman does because we look at guys like Haman and we think, man, I'm not at that level. You are at that level because all sin separates Consequences, different. Sin, all of it separates, right? Galatians 6.3 says, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. He deceives himself. So wisdom comes when we realize that what actual dignity is, is humility. That's wisdom. And then finally, this is the fourth thing that we see pride Unfolding in our lives, like it did with Haman, is that it costs us more than we realize. So, a lot of times we kind of go to pride as sort of like the the cheap sin. Oh, I am just prideful. What do you think's the biggest issue in your life, Ronnie? Oh, it's just pride. You know, so we can kind of we can kind of coat over a lot of things by just using this big word, pride. But pride. As we see, if we go all the way back to Genesis with Adam and Eve, and pride is the sin that undergirds all sin, right? It's the sin that all sins want to be when they grow up, right? It's the sin that all sins aspire to be. Pride is the Tom Brady of all sins, right? Pride is the goat, right? It's the greatest of all time, sins. But the problem is that it costs us more than we realize. Because pride that remains unrepented of ultimately ends in ruin. And this is where the radical nature of Christianity comes in, right? Because the radical nature of Christianity is this it's that Christ is the only bona fide pride killer in existence for you and for me. Christianity is an admittance, it's an admittance that we are not all that. And we realize that if we continue believing that we are righteous enough to stand before God, it will be the undoing of our souls. Pride creates a great burden for us to be whatever we need to be, to add up to whatever it takes to make the grade in life. But this is where Christ comes in. Because when Christ changes our heart, our eyes are finally opened to the real truth about ourselves is that we can never be the person we need to be on our own. We can never make the grade. You don't have what it takes, right? We're not all that. Christianity tells us that we need the righteousness of another who humbled himself to death even though he was the only person who had the right to boast about anything ever. You hear me on that? The beauty of Christianity is that, listen, it doesn't simply remove our boasting. It redirects it. It redirects it because praise, boasting, it's intrinsic to who we are, right? We were made to boast, There's a reason why when you see something amazing or you experience something beautiful or you taste something delicious, the only thing you want to do is go to somebody and tell them about it. The only thing you want to do is share the joy that you experienced in that particular moment. So praise, boasting, it's intrinsic to who God has made us. The problem is, is that after Adam and Eve sinned and we inherited That DNA, all of our boasting that originally went to God, which is what gives us a sense of happiness and joy, it just slapped back into ourselves. So we've been deceived into thinking that our greatest joy is in boasting, and it is, but in boasting of ourselves and not in Christ. So Christianity, and by Christianity I mean Jesus Christ, He doesn't remove our boasting. He redirects it. Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Paul tells the church in 1 Corinthians, he says, brothers, consider your calling. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Paul's just like putting it to him right here. He says, not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. Tell us what you really mean, Paul. Um, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no, listen, no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, Paul says, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So he's not saying don't boast. He's saying, let your boast be righteous, Pride is so thin, right? Pride is so thin. All it took, listen, all it took for Haman's undoing was a king who had a bad night's sleep. What? We can't bear the weight of our pride. Anytime we look at something and say, look at what my hands have made, it's irrational because it's a denial of the reality that anything our hands are capable of making are capable of crumbling, right? We all see what happens over and over and over again. Watch some documentaries on Netflix if you don't believe me. We all see what happens uh, when we have pride in certain things which can never carry the weight that they carry. Even for us, even in all the categories that we have, right? See what happens when we have pride in parenting right? What happens when your kids go off the rails? What happens to your pride then? Pride in your work. Well, what happens? What happens when you get laid off or fired or your business goes bankrupt? Pride in your fitness. I mean, good. But what happens when you get diagnosed with a debilitating or a life-threatening disease? What happens then? They can't carry the weight of it. Pride in your family. What happens when those relationships just implode, right? Pride in your talents. What happens when the other person gets chosen for the position? What happens when the other person gets picked before you? When the other person gets the title and you realize, oh, what I thought I was and the talent I had, well, there's people, man, that are way, way tiered above me. What about pride in your dreams, This is what I've always wanted to do. I'm going to do it. Nobody's going to stop me. What happens when they don't come true? What happens? And Barnes & Noble has a whole section called self-help that's determined to get you through these moments in life, except they don't get you through these moments in life because we cannot bear the weight of our pride. Why? Because it's a broken logic. And You know what the world's answer is? The world's answer is, girls, stop apologizing. Pick yourself up, prove yourself, be who you are. Don't let anyone tell you you can't do something. And don't think for a minute that we haven't been influenced by that kind of rhetoric because we have. Today, what the world would offer us is this interesting message, which is just take pride in your imperfection. It's okay to not be okay. It's okay to be who you are, is it? Actually, the Bible gives us a different message and thankfully and beautifully, Jesus has a different answer for us. Jesus says that our boasting is symptomatic of a deeper longing that won't be met by going deeper into ourselves. It's found by denying ourselves, by picking up our cross by following Jesus who abated the wrath of God by humbling himself to the point of death on the cross. It's a life that we did not live so that we might have a life that is worth living. How great, you guys, is God's grace that we don't have to hang by our own gallows of pride because Christ hung from them in our place to abate the wrath of God for our pride. Psalm 138, for though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. He regards the lowly. He comes down to us. He walks with us. He's in the valley, the shadow of death as we are going through it, comforting us being with us, providing for us, meeting us there. For he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. I don't want to know God from afar. I want God to know me close because I need somebody who's close to me when my pride is doing everything it can to keep it a distance from him. And so that's the promise of God for us is that we don't have to have a life like Haman. And again, so that we're not so deceived, so that we don't think that, man, these sins of Haman, man, might have sins that don't, man, they're not quite up there with that. They are quite up there with that. They are quite up there with that, right? These respectable sins that we have in our lives that are the root of the pride of disobedience, that things, I can keep doing this, On my own. God is here to say that he regards us when we're in a low estate because that's the place that he sent Jesus to be in so that we might know God. And again, that's the boasting. That's the boasting that we want our hearts to get to because it brings life and it brings joy and it's a weight that our souls Can not only bear, but they were meant to carry. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you you help us in our pride. You don't just leave us. Um, You give us so many opportunities. You reveal so many things to our hearts so that we can take note of the things that that are bearing down at us, Lord, that are the result of our own pride and our own prejudice. And Lord, we can't bear the weight of those things. And so Lord, I, I pray this morning um, as, we, as our heads are bowed, Lord, and we are considering some of those things in our life, um, some of those things that may be, um, they may be hard to locate um, because they're sins, but they're respectable sins. And they're things that we can just brush off. They're not as blatant. They're not as out there. They're not as noticeable as the things that we see in Haman. And yet, if we really take a close look at Haman, we see a lot of characteristics that really inform who we are as well. So, God, would you have mercy on us this morning? Would you not allow us to continue in sins, whether blatant or whether respectable ones, that don't please you, that don't conform to the image of Christ through obedience? but that continue to allow us just to live how we want, do what we want to do, and self-actualize in all the different ways that are most comfortable to us. Or would you guard us from that? Would you do whatever it takes to pull us out of those traps? And today, Lord, would you allow our hearts to be broken for you? And that this day might be just a day of just so much thankfulness and rejoicing because Christ did go to the cross to abate your wrath so that we could stand before you right now and pray these prayers and trust in you and believe, Lord, that when we lower ourselves, you are right there with us so that we can seek your face, so that we can know what is the will of God, that we would be sanctified and conformed to the image of Jesus who lowered and humbled himself, Lord. So let Christ be our example as we go today and let there be rejoicing in the things, Lord, that you have surfaced in our hearts that we need to repent of so that this weight can finally be pulled off of our back. It can stop crushing us and we can find peace and relief and hope, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen, let's stand.